friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus, this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, um, I remember my days fondly as an RUF campus minister. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and it is the college outreach of our denomination to the college campus. I served uh, at SMU as a campus minister for seven years. Um, and one of the things each year that I look forward to more than anything else was the end of the year summer beach conference. Um, after going through a long and dark winter, it was always nice to be able to look forward to the beaches of Florida 
for our end of the year beach conference. We would join hundreds and sometimes thousands of other students from various RUF chapters all over the country as they would descend on Panama City Beach for lots of beach time, lots of fun, and lots of good teaching. Um, and I could remember a speech I would give the first breakfast we would have. We would all convene together in the morning for, for breakfast, and then we would go about our day and do our various activities. And so typically we would leave Dallas, you know, early one morning. We would get to Panama City Beach, you know, that same evening. It's about 12 hours, and then we would go to bed, and we would get up and eat together and get ready for the day. And I would just give a speech about wearing sunscreen and being careful about the sun because this was the first time where the kids would have, like, lots of sun exposures down in Florida. It's easy to get burned. And there was one student in particular this year named Jay, who was very fair-skinned, with red hair, and I said to Jay, you know, you're just going to have to be very careful. You're going to have to wear sunscreen. You're going to have to kind of be out in moderation because this, this could be difficult for you. And so he comes up to me and he kind of pats me on the head and he patronizingly says, you know, I've got it under control. I'm from Florida. And I said, well, Jay, you look like you're from Ireland. There's nothing about you that would indicate that you have any association with Florida, and I'm not sure how that's going to help you. I'm not sure that's going to give you some kind of special force field from the sun, but so be it. Absolutely true story. That night, we convened for dinner. After a wonderful day of sun and activities, I have never to this day seen another human being with that color purple on their skin. Um, Jay was at dinner. He was, he was shivering. Um, he was clearly in pain. And, uh, but, but due to his pride, he didn't want to admit, you know, that being from Florida wasn't such a help after all. Um, we probably should have taken him to the doctor or something. We went to the Walmart that was near there and just slathered him with aloe. And Jay didn't see much of the beach for the rest of the week. And like I said, it was apparent that being from Florida did not help him one bit. And in our passage this morning, being from Israel and being a son of Abraham wasn't going to help the Jews one bit either. They needed a serious wake-up call that they were trusting in the wrong thing and they were about to get that serious wake-up call. But first, our historical context. We're fast-forwarding in the life and ministry of Jesus 18 years. Last week, we looked at Jesus as he was 12 years old and, and what happened to him when he lingered at the temple and how impressive he was and the kind of wisdom he demonstrated. Well, the Gospels don't give us anything else after Jesus is 12 years old until now when he's 30 years old. The historical context can be understood through the introduction of this famous figure, John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, that's the historical context of this passage. This is when we meet John the Baptist for the first time. Who was John the Baptist? John the Baptist is a fascinating figure. John the Baptist is spoken of even outside the Bible. Josephus, who is a very, very famous first century writer, um, 
remarks about John the Baptist, how popular he was, what a significant figure he was, how people viewed him. John the Baptist was, 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 came on the scene um, with some significant gravitas and force. John the Baptist can be understood as the last of the Old Testament prophets. What we have in our passage this morning is a, is a meeting, is a meeting between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New. There's really nothing else like it in the entire Bible. This is where the Old Testament prophets formally pass the baton to the Messiah in Jesus' baptism. You might say this is where the Testaments kiss for lack of a better word. All, everything comes together in this one passage. Do you remember how Jesus referred to John the Baptist? He said there is no one born among women more significant than John the Baptist. John was coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Like, like look at our text. Verses 1 through 3. Matthew tells us that in those days, John the Baptist, he was known as John the Baptist because his primary role was one of preparation and baptism. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And the essence of his message was this, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So there's a prophecy that was issued over 700 years before this day. The Old Testament anticipated and prophesied that there would be a herald announcing the arrival of Messiah. And that happened in the ancient Near East all the time. If kings would visit a particular town, oftentimes they wouldn't show up. They would be preceded by a herald who would announce their arrival and would prepare the city for his coming. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was there announcing and introducing the coming of the king. Okay? Malachi 4.5, and we focused on this in our Advent series. Here's how Malachi puts it. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And some of the last words of the Old Testament read as follows. Yahweh says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's why John dresses the way he does. Look with me at verse 4. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Why in the world did John dress this way? John is communicating that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He's not literally Elijah reincarnate. He's coming in the spirit and power and fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay, so he is, he is coming as the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's got a very straightforward message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. And he was given a certain job. He was given baptism of repentance to administer and bestow on the people. Okay, and this is interesting. Because you can't find this kind of baptism that John was doing anywhere in the Old Testament. It does not exist. Scholars from time immemorial have asked the question, where did this baptism come from? Okay? Um, scholars, the, 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 ultimately here's the long and short of it is we have no idea where John got this particular baptism from. This kind of baptism had evolved during the intertestamental period. So between Malachi and the four Gospels, okay, it, it went from not being a thing to being a thing, like, like baptism. So what many scholars think is that, and again, we don't know this for sure, is that in addition to circumcision, so when a, when a Gentile would profess faith in the God of Israel and would convert to Judaism, in addition to circumcision, for reasons unbeknownst to us, they started baptizing Gentiles as a way to confirm them in the Jewish faith. And many scholars think that what John the Baptist did is he applied that kind of rite, okay, that kind of, um, that kind of new ordinance, and he applied it to Jews as well, indicating that they couldn't rest on their laurels, okay, as being Jewish for their assurance of salvation, that they too need to get their hearts ready for the coming of Messiah. So, so perhaps what John the Baptist is doing is he is employing something that had been administered primarily to Gentiles as they transition to Judaism, and now John is taking that and he's applying that to the Jews of his day, okay? What is baptism? As we've talked about before, this is a little different than Christian baptism. What is baptism? What is a short definition? Baptism was to be an outward sign of what? An inward reality. Okay, the outward sign involved in this context either immersion or pouring. Okay, and so what did the water represent? The water represented cleansing and purification, okay? But it was to be an outward sign of a heart reality. Okay, that's why John says, what does John say in verse 8 of our text? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because this wasn't just supposed to be some kind of outward ceremony, okay, that was a kind of religious rite, devoid of anything spiritual. It was to be an outward sign of something that was going on in your heart. And it should result in life change. So long story short, John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he has the most significant job of them all. He is to introduce the people of Israel to the son of David, the Messiah, their coming king. And he's to get them ready through this baptism of repentance that would prepare them to meet this one. Okay, that's why Jesus is baptized. Jesus is baptized. This is, this is like um, John giving his approbation to Jesus. This is, this is John publicly declaring, this is the Christ. This is the one you're supposed to be trusting in. 
Why did Jesus get baptized, do you think? I mean, John, John indicated you're supposed to get baptized and you're supposed to be coming, confessing your sins. Why did Jesus get baptized? What would you say if someone asked you? You know, we know that Jesus didn't sin. He didn't have anything to confess. So logically speaking, why did he get baptized? Jesus got baptized. This relates to what Nate was saying a couple weeks ago. Jesus was filling out the resume of redemption. Jesus had to do certain things in order to qualify himself to be the perfect sacrifice. Jesus had to do certain things to become, in a sense, the perfectly qualified Israelite to represent you and me. And so all throughout his life, Jesus is, is filling up that resume of redemption. And so he gets baptized. I mean, John's like, look, why are you getting baptized? I need to be baptized by you, not you by me. Jesus said, this is happening to what? To fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he is qualifying himself to be the perfect Messiah. Okay. That's what John was doing. He was preparing the people to meet their king. And so in the course of doing this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come as well. And scholars debate, like, were they actually coming to be baptized or were they coming to kind of just check out what John was doing? Who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Like, who are these characters? This is the first time they're introduced to the reader at this point. Who were they? There was no religious party in the Old Testament called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what we're seeing is that between the book of Malachi and the Gospels, lots of things happened. Lots of things like evolved and developed. And in the absence of a Davidic king ruling and reigning, okay, um, these religious parties had evolved the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And there is no modern equivalent of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, they, they, were a, they, they, they were a mixture of like political leaders and spiritual leaders. They were the religious scholars of their day, okay? And over the years, religious life in Israel had devolved into just kind of ritualism. Empty, outward ritualism. Okay, like... Um, so, question. So, like, um, when you think of yourself as like a United States citizen, right? You, there are certain rights and privileges that go along with that as a United States citizen. The Jews viewed themselves as, as citizens of, of Israel, and they understood that one of the central and core rights they enjoyed as Israelites was assurance of salvation. Okay, they felt like it was their, it was their birthright to be the accepted people of God. And so, you know, like today, like it's, it's very, it's, it's not uncommon for people in our context to, to question their salvation, right? Have you ever talked to someone who, who struggles with assurance of salvation? How do I know that I'm saved? 
How do I know that I'm a, I'm a true Christian? Okay, those, those, that can be unhealthy, but it can also be very healthy. Okay? It can be very unhealthy to just presume that everything's fine. Well, at this point in Israel's history and life, they viewed them, nobody was asking that question. There weren't any Jews at this time that had struggles with their assurance of salvation. Okay, there weren't any Jews who were struggling with their quiet times and wondering whether or not they were saved. Okay, there weren't any Jews that were thinking, you know, I'm not really memorizing enough of the Bible. I'm not really hiding the Torah in my heart, and so do I really love God? They weren't asking those questions. Where did their confidence come? Look at what John says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 7. See, the mindset of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's the mindset of the average Israelite. Okay, the, the worldview of the Pharisees and the Sadducees gives you a window into the worldview of the average Jew. Okay, so John sarcastically looks at the Pharisees and Sadducees and said, basically, why are you here? Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Like, you're not concerned about this. Why are you here? And then he exposes what it was that they were trusting in. Verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, um, to able to raise from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So that gives you a window in what they were presuming on, what their worldview was. They felt like they were right with God because they were Jews, because they were sons of Abraham, and nothing could have been further from the truth. Now, now, there's this 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 term. Um, I don't know when it became popularized, kind of in in the business world of of one of disruption, being a disruptor. So people that are entrepreneurs or, or starting new businesses, there's this new buzzword like, like be a disruptor. And a disruptor is often somebody who's like an entrepreneur. They're coming in, they're introducing something new. They're trying to shake things up. They're trying to change the way that business happens. They're going to be a disruptor. Well, John the Baptist was a disruptor before being a disruptor was in vogue. And he was there to completely disrupt their presumption that they were right with God because they were sons and daughters of Abraham. See, their problem was they were just looking back to Abraham. Okay? And their assurance came from looking back. And John was saying, no, 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 no. You need to look forward. You need to look at the one who is coming. You need to repent and turn from your wicked ways and trust in God's provision for you in this Messiah. What does repentance mean? That's the essence and core of his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was going to be a revolutionary concept to these people. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not the kingdom of Israel, not a geopolitical nation, a spiritual kingdom 
is at hand. It's here. It's being inaugurated with the coming of the king. And wherever Jesus' people are, that's where the kingdom is. The kingdom doesn't have physical borders. The kingdom is a spiritual one composed of people that trust in Messiah. What is repentance? Okay, if you're at lunch today and someone says, can we dig a little deeper? What does repentance mean? Okay, there's, there's very briefly, and we're almost done, kind of two kinds of repentance. Like, like, like what Nate read this morning in our confession of faith, in our, in our confession of faith, it's got kind of a, a lofty title, like Repentance Unto Life, little King James Version. It's called Repentance Unto Life, which is really their way of describing conversion. Okay, so there is a, you know, certainly for adults who, who aren't Christian, like they repent with a capital R. They, they, they turn from the life they would have lived and they give their life to Jesus Christ. But, and then there's a lowercase r for people who are Christians, and that's more of a daily thing where you repent of the ways that you have transgressed God's law and you trust in Christ for provision. Like, why is it in the Old Testament, like, the prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet went to the people of God, calling on them to repent, but they didn't. They wouldn't. Why? Because they didn't see a need to, because they were Jews, and because they were Jews, they were fined. And John is stepping into that, saying... Look, God, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Like people with that mindset, people with that idea, it's, it's over. Your only hope is to trust in this coming king. And so I'll, I'll kind of end with this. The message of this text is the people of God were, were being instructed in new ways as to what repentance really looked like. Okay? Repentance means turning from the life that you would live turning from the person that you would be if you did not believe in Jesus and submitting your life to his, living in a way that would bring him honor and glory. It's turning from something to something. And I'll end with this. In my, um, in, in my little morning devotional times, I'm reading through the book of Jeremiah. And it had occurred to me this past week that there is an amazing parallel between Jeremiah's message of repentance and what we get in the gospel. If you remember what Jeremiah, you may not remember what Jeremiah's message was to the people. At the beginning of Jeremiah, and this, Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet right before the, the Babylonian captivity happened. So Jeremiah is a prophet before the Babylonian captivity and as the people are taken into captivity. And Jeremiah is kind of making a last-ditch effort to get the people to repent and trust in the Lord, which they don't, okay? And then he tells them something very unique. He told them the secret to living. Does anybody here remember the counterintuitive message that Jeremiah gave to the people? in terms of what it would look like to save their life. Do you remember? Jeremiah told the people, the only way you can be saved is to surrender and allow yourself to be taken to Babylon. And the people are like, what? I'm sorry, you want me to do what? I didn't hear you right, Jeremiah. You're asking us 
to surrender to the Babylonians and peacefully allow ourselves to be taken to Babylon. That's the last thing they ever expected. Okay, what repentance looked like at the end of Jeremiah was them giving up everything that they knew to trust God's provision for them in Babylon. That was the last thing they could have ever expected. That was the means God used to save them. The people that went to Babylon were saved and preserved and cared for and brought back. And that's the same message in the New Testament. The last thing anyone ever expected is that they would be asked to repent and believe in a crucified Savior. That's the last thing anyone ever expected. Give up your life, the life you would have lived outside of that, to trust in a crucified Savior. That seemed counterintuitive. That seemed ridiculous. But that is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's repentance. It's turning from your life of sin and trusting in this provision for you, this crucified Savior. That's where life can be found. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you. We thank you for who you are and for all that you have done. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist, the original disruptor who, who was called by you to disrupt, disrupt the status quo and help disabuse the people of their presumption, of, of their, their assurance of salvation because they were sons and daughters of, of Abraham. Father, we thank you so much for John and his ministry and the power of his preaching, directing everyone to the, your Messiah through the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your provision for us through this crucified Messiah who lived for us and who died for us, and who provides for us, and who cares for us. Father, help us to learn what it means to repent and trust everything we are and everything we have to him. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen.